Aren't you preaching today? No, I can't. I can't pull any tricks on this guy. <clears throat> Morning, everyone. Uh, from time to time, we're going to change things up like we did today, and there's actually a uh, logistical reason, is because if uh, we just go like right from worship right into the message, and I end up getting tangled up in all these wires. Maybe you don't notice it. Maybe it's not a big thing for you. It kind of bothers me. So um, from time to time, if I'm leading and, and preaching, we'll switch things up like that. And uh, I was going to say we could kind of vote whether that's like we like to do that or not, but uh, we'll just make an executive decision from time to time so we don't get in too much of a rut. But um, we're glad you're here. Uh, glad that uh, you came to fellowship here and, uh, and glad that we're all in fellowship. Uh, clearly, the Bible teaches us that we that we need to be, and that we need to be uh, in and amongst the believers. And that's a wide variety. That's not limited to Sunday morning. I never want to give that impression. Uh, because too many people live that way, that their, that their Christian time is like a two-hour window on Sunday morning, and the rest of the week is not as important, or it's not uh, as relevant, and there's not as many opportunities. And that's not true. There's more opportunities. This is just a... Uh, this is a place to come and maybe uh, get your batteries charged a little bit. It's definitely a place to come Sunday morning. Definitely a place to come. Really what we're called to do is we're come, called to come and, and bring our spiritual gifts to bear in the life of the community and uh, to encourage one another, uh, to hear from one another, to be challenged from one another, to, to share God's word, to encourage, pray, all of those kinds of things. And uh, I love it that that's what we do. And this is... Uh, this is just one part of, uh, of that in the life of a body. Last week, we kind of took a, um, a slowed-down version. We've been preaching. If you haven't been here, we've been preaching through the book of First Peter. And uh, last week was a slowed-down, lots of, like, uh, application points. I was specifically asked for that based upon the previous week uh, of dealing with authority and submission in the home. And I was asked by a wide variety of people after that service two weeks ago if I would slow down and just like give some examples of how that worked for us. And like I mentioned last week, it made me a little squeamish, and it shouldn't. I think it was squeamish maybe in a good way that um, I, I don't like to put myself up or our family up on some sort of pedestal. Uh, we have the same struggles. We have the same, uh, you know, temptations. We have the same... Uh, uh, challenges. Thank you, Mom. Takes me right back to that junior high or junior. My junior year English class. If it wasn't for my mom. I probably wouldn't have passed. Um, anyway, but uh, we have those same issues, and we have had those same issues. And I, I want to be real clear about that. That it's not. It's not about how awesome we are. It's really about how awesome God is, and how God led us as a family. To, to live out uh, what the Word says. And I hope that that was really clear. And so last week was a little bit of a slowdown. And, and really the concept into to ordering your house um, right, so to speak, um, was the key, kind of that key verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, is that we're called to, not called, we're commanded to sanctify the Lord in our hearts. Like if we don't put Jesus first, that's what I was praying about during worship. If we don't put Jesus as preeminent over everything in our lives and order our lives, so this is men, women, children, 
uh, parents, dads, it's our, our job to teach. Parents, it's our job to teach the kids, to lead by example, but also to teach them these principles and truths that are found in the Word. That if we don't start by putting God preeminent over everything, our whole uh, understanding and paradigm is, is tilted. It's tilted in a wrong way. And a lot of, let's be honest with one another, a lot of life is actually discovering that and then, and then going about the hard task of what God calls us to do uh, in writing that. And in writing that, we end up submitting to the Word and submitting to the Lord and changing our behaviors and our attitudes and our actions. Uh, but this idea of sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts, that was, that was Peter's message. It wasn't his message exclusively. It was the apostles' message um, that Jesus had to be set apart in his heart. And, uh, and, and we see <clears throat> we're to set Jesus apart uh, from all others because that's what the Father has done. Uh, that's what the Father's game plan is with Jesus. We see this all through the Scripture. Is he's saying, hey, there's a special one that's coming. There's a deliverer that's coming. There's a deliverer that's coming. And then he comes... And Peter lived this message, if we think about, and we've preached through the book of Acts here in recent years, if we think about how, Jesus, how Peter was so transformed, and you see that transformation come out in his message, he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, this is, no, this is no average guy. Peter's not saying, hey, well, Jesus is just kind of a normal dude that had a special task. He's not saying that. He's saying he's like above everybody. He's preeminent in, in the world that uh, he entered into. So he did these miracles, wonders, and signs in which God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. And here's that setting apart. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. That's how preeminent Jesus is. He's not held by anything. He's not bound by anything. So you can stumble all over the Middle East all you want to with the shovel, but he's not in the grave. He's not held by sin and death. It also says in verse 32, this Jesus God is raised up from which we are all witnesses. Hey, we, we were there. We saw what happened. Remember the, if you remember the accounts, if you remember the resurrection accounts where John was the first one to the tomb, Peter never touched the brakes. Shot right in, right past John. John's paused. Not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that pause. He ran to it. And while he's kind of like in hesitation mode, man, Peter, he's hitting the hole. He's right inside. He wants to know what's going on. We're all witnesses, he says. He's demonstrating in his message his own sanctification of the Lord in his heart. Peter is. And he says this, therefore be being exalted in the right hand of God and having received the Father, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on this, which you now see and hear. So he's saying this sanctification part has to do with the Holy Spirit entering into us. See, these guys thought that, they thought the apostles, or they thought the disciples were, and the group that was gathered, they thought they were drunk. They thought they were 
you know, boozing it up early in the morning. No, 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 no. No, Peter says, he says, there's a sanctification that's going on here that I'm telling you about that God is doing something special. And it's not alcohol. It's not a buzz. It's the Holy Spirit that's working in us. That was his plan. He also says in verse 36 of that same chapter, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. So, make no mistake, nation of Israel. Make no mistake, you're on notice, nailing it up. No mistake, that God has made this Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts. That's sanctifying Jesus in our hearts. There's another account I just wanted to touch on real quickly in the life of Peter. And it's a situation that takes place in the next chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 3. And, and, and at this point, the, the, the apostles were, were going around and just simply preaching Jesus. They were living out what Jesus had told them to do. They were ministering to people. They were bringing the light of Christ into the world, as it were. And he says now, verse 11... Now, with this, <clears throat> now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel. So Peter just healed this lame man with the power of God, and he gives him an opportunity to stand up and speak the same message. He says, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk. Hey, it's not me. This, is, this was the message from last week, in a sense, the message behind the message, is that it's, it's not Tammy and I. We didn't just like power through and, 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 and get to where we are through our own you know, willpower. We got there because of what God was doing. It wasn't on our own power or godliness that made this one that made this man walk, Peter says. The power of God, <clears throat> the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. There's that sanctification piece, setting Jesus above. He glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the prince of life. Notice all of these descriptive, descriptive language Peter uses of Jesus. Killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which you are now witnesses. And verse 16 is the key. And his name, <clears throat> through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and you know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. It's God's sanctifying work in our lives, physically, spiritually, primarily, but also physically, relationally. It's God's sanctifying work in our lives as we determine to follow after him. It's not so much our determination, but recognizing that he is the one that, 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 that leads us and that restores us. So, when Jesus restored Peter, in John 21, uh, we really see this uh, all come together where Peter was forever changed, forever focused 
on the gospel. And he was, as he says in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, then ready to give that a defense, right? Sanctify the Lord in your God in your hearts. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. That's the rest of the verse. That's the rest of the verse. Uh, but that's really where Peter was as we see the life of Peter played out in both this epistle and also the book of Acts. As he wrote these letters, I've been wondering if he was thinking about those few times. You know, I think about, we think about those types of things. As he was writing, sitting down to, to, to think about writing this letter to these people, to, to the churches all over the, you know, Asia, modern-day Turkey, I wonder if he was thinking back. It's one of my questions for Peter at some point in, in time. I wonder if he was thinking of all of those events that took place right after Pentecost. How he was given an answer for the hope that was in him. One of the reasons that God's so intentional to communicate uh, that we focus on him and push away all other competing voices is simply this. It comes down to survival. When we hear the world's word survival, we think of all sorts of different contexts. I mean, you type survival in a Google search, you're going to get, a, you know, millions of different hits and responses. I'm not talking survival so that, you know, that we can hide out in caves and that sort of thing. I'm talking about survival uh, with life and eternal life. See, the context by which Peter was writing this in was in a world where the Christians were being harassed, they were being marginalized, they were being uh, minimized, they were being mocked. There was a lot of political posturing and, and movement that was going on. Uh, we think that we struggle with censorship because my parlor account or your parlor account doesn't work. They had no voice socially. I wouldn't say they had no voice but they had no voice in, in the conversation of the culture. But what they did have is they had the Word of God, they had the voice of God, as it were, living in them. That's what overcomes. That's what, that, when I talk about survival in the context of the first uh, century church and also our survival, that's really where I go. Uh, not so much in a prepper style or, or uh, and I think that we should be wise. I'm not saying we shouldn't be I'm not saying we should be flippant in the culture that we live in and uh, not know what's going on. But the reality is, is that Rome was constantly putting pressure on anyone who refused to bow their knee to the emperor. And in our day, I believe culturally, and this has been going on for a long time, and it's been varying degrees, but there's always pressure against the believer. We have to understand that. We have to understand what God's plan is then to survive that type of pressure, and actually not just survive, I would actually like to replace that word, survive, to thrive, to thrive in that pressure, because that's really what happened in the first century. That's really what's going on in various places around the world. I was talking to, uh, I can't remember who I was talking to yesterday on the phone, and um, right now in the world, there's an area where there is... Uh, great revival going on. People coming to Christ in, in, in uh, you know, I wouldn't say hordes, but in mass, so to speak. And that's in the Middle East. 
And the point I was telling the guy we were talking about, um, it's actually my cousin's cousin, so you do the math on that. But his name's John, a great friend of ours, and uh, lives over on the west side of the state. And uh, I asked John, I said, with all these people coming to faith in Christ, can you name one single famous pastor in the Middle East? Can you name one famous pastor in the Middle East? I can't. I know people that are in the Middle East. I know people that want to go to the Middle East. I know people that have ministered in the Middle East and are now back or home or someplace else. God's word is powerful as it transforms people. And so my point is to say that it's not so much about personality. It's not so much about, and and our culture in America gets this kind of wrong because we follow personality, and and if the personality seems good, we'll kind of go with it. That's kind of the cultural, you know, that's why you have these shows that crop up like, you know, Dancing with the Stars and The Voice and, I don't, there's like a bunch of them. I don't watch them, but um, you know what I'm talking about. Because everybody's wondering who that next influential person is going to be. But back to my original thought, can you, can you name a real, you know, famous evangelist in the Middle East? Yet God's word is powerful and it's changing hearts and it's changing lives. And it's at work. And it really boils down to kind of two ways to thrive, to survive and thrive. Because there's kind of two, there's actually two ways to, I guess you would say that there's two ways that the first century church survived and thrived, or people in the first century, and there's two ways that we can. One, which I don't recommend, is to yield to the cultural pressure. That's what Rome was trying to do with those first century believers that Paul was writing to. Put enough pressure on them that they would cave. Put enough pressure on them that they would turn and they would denounce Christ. Put enough, put enough spin and, and, and misrepresent them and, and marginalize them to the point where they're finally just say, you know what, I'm just going to give up. And we could do that in our culture too. Or, my suggestion, I think the Bible's suggestion, is yield to God's plan and rediscover how faith takes us through the fire. Not around the fire, not to avoid the fire, how faith in Christ, how setting Christ apart in our hearts and, and sanctifying Him, as Peter says, in our hearts, how that faith in who He is and how He transforms us, and in that we walk through the fire. And it doesn't matter if we're burned. It doesn't. We're scared to death. Our culture does everything to avoid pain and suffering at any cost. I'm not a masochist. Don't get me wrong on this. I don't like to be heated up any more than anybody else does. I don't like to fire any more than anybody else does. But there is something in this chapter. Peter has been beating this drum in chapter 3 about suffering. And let's be honest about where we are. We don't suffer well. We don't suffer well at all. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, he kind of concludes a section that's going to lead us into where we're going. He says this statement, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good 
than for doing evil. So there might be a day, maybe, you, maybe, maybe you're in the category that right now life really stinks. Or maybe you've just came out of that time in your life. Or maybe you're headed into that time. Here's the common denominator that we all have. We all, as Christ followers, are going to experience suffering. All of us. There's always going to be something out there that's difficult, that's hard that's painful, that hurts, that's going to shred your heart to pieces. And you feel, how am I ever going to recover from this? How am I ever going to get through this? It's not necessarily an easy message. But I think the church today needs to wake up and rediscover what the Bible says and what the Word says about suffering in Christ's name. Now, I want to throw a little bit of a qualifier out there. I've mentioned this many times before, uh, that there is a difference between trials and tribulations as opposed to consequences. Do we all understand that? Trials and tribulations on this side, consequences on that side. A consequence is when we get rang up for a stupid decision that we've made. Right? We all agree? One example, you run up 300000 on credit cards, which is 40 times more than what you can cash flow. And all of a sudden, the creditors come along and say, uh, we want your house, your cars, anything down to the coins in your couch <laughs> that's worth some money to start paying this bill back. That's a consequence. You made a willful decision to not... Follow the Word of God and what the Bible says about finances, what the Bible says about being a good steward of what you have, or what I have. I'll put myself in this category as much as anybody. There's a consequence to those decisions and those actions. It may feel like a trial. It may be heated up. It may turn into a trial, literally. But the reality is, is that's a consequence for the decisions that we've made. The difference between that and a trial and a tribulation, a tribulation really is, uh, is something that comes about, something that comes about in the life of a believer that puts us into this testing period where God allows to reveal our character. Now, our character is going to be revealed in both scenarios. But the second one, the trial and tribulation, is not a, there's not a uh, reap what you sow effect. We've walked through many of these as a family. We've gone through some deep things. Currently, we're in difficult waters in parts of our family where it's a tribulation, right? So how are we going to process that? Are we going to medicate our way around it? Are we going to ignore our way around it? Are we going to bury ourselves in work to get around it? There's all kinds of runarounds. But the first point I want to say today is that God has a purpose in our suffering, and we have to acknowledge that as Christ followers. Uh, question for the ages, um, <clears throat> what's God's purpose for our suffering? Because God does have a purpose. Uh, the second thing, I wrote a couple of questions down. Who signed up to suffer? Like when, when somebody shared the gospel with you, did they tell you, <clears throat> you know, God loves you, he has a plan for you, uh, he wants to invite you into relationship, he has eternal life in store for you if you trust Jesus as your Savior? And, uh, but mostly you're going to suffer, you're going to experience a lot of pain, you're going to experience a lot of agony. The Bible says that there's going to be division in your family. 
uh, there's going to be a lot of tension, a lot of grief, a lot of hard growing pains. At that point, what do we do? We're kind of like, I don't want any of that. The, the first part of that equation sounds pretty delightful. But the second part, uh, I'm out. That's what, but we seldom share the second part of the equation. We seldom share that, that component that life is hard as a Christ follower, as a Christian. Now, if we've matured a little bit in our faith or, or we have a, a better understanding, we're actually going to see this whole di- idea that God has a purpose for our suffering. Because we'll tell the whole story front to back for people and leave them at that decision point for themselves. But who signs up for suffering? Nobody does. Who signs up for heartache? Nobody signs up for it. But definitely God can use our suffering, especially if it's in the area of doing good. Now, the idea of good or evil that Peter talked about in verse 17 is kind of a tie back to his first point in regard to submission. And this is where we get these ideas of trials and tribulations or we get this idea of suffering. The government's role in in the lives of the people that they govern is to essentially, and I've shared this in weeks past, is essentially boils down to reward good behavior, punish evil. Reward good behavior, punish evil. That's really all the government's, you know, I mean, lead people, but that, that is what should be the basis if you look at even our own founding documents and most founding documents of any country in the world, there's going to be this aspect that there needs to be law and order and that people that obey the law are uh, essentially free. Not every belief system or every, you know, system in the world has this, but essentially this is the, uh, the call and the duty of government. And Peter kind of ties that back into this idea of suffering. But who says to themselves, uh, I'm willing to stop what I'm currently doing and embrace the pain and reject, rejection and heartache? Nobody does. Actually, that's not true. One man did that. One man said, hey, I, I, I'll, I'll change what I'm doing. I'll stop what I'm doing right now. And, and, and uh, actually, I wouldn't say they stopped what he's doing. There was a plan from the beginning of time, the word says, that he changed where he was, went somewhere else, embraced pain, rejection, and heartache. That one man, of course, is Jesus. Uh, but Why? Why? And this is where we're going to start this morning. Turn your Bibles or it's up on the screen. 1 Peter 1, chapter 3, verse 18 is where we'll start. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The ultimate example that we are to follow, the ultimate example that there is out there, The ultimate example that we need to point people to is that God allows suffering for this higher purpose. And it's Jesus' suffering, really. It's the fact that that this is what he did for us, and if we're going to follow him, we're going to embrace that same mentality. Not often talked about, mostly avoid. I love this phrase, once for sins, the just for the unjust. Uh, Jesus is not still dying for our sins. It was a one-time event that covered it all. The just for the unjust. 
When we suffer for good, when we suffer for good, we have the sweetness of God as Christ followers. When we suffer for good, we have this kind of the sweetness of God. We have the Holy Spirit within us leading and guiding us. But we can have the sweetness of God that leads us through that. And, and, and a lot of times, and I know a lot of people's testimony is it was like, it was in those moments that were the hardest to bear, God was right there. In that hospital waiting room, when your whole world is melting down and you're on your knees in front of a you know, sofa, that's where God meets us and there's a sweetness to that. And we have that available sweetness as Christ's followers that takes us through the fire, through the trial, through the tribulation. There's a difference between that suffering and Jesus' suffering. Because Jesus' suffering is different than ours. Jesus' suffering, he didn't experience that sweetness as it were. Because he bore our sins on the cross without the comfort of the Father. There was separation. Jesus endured, if you will, not the sweetness. He endured the sourness of wrath for our sakes. He endured the, the sourness as it is for, of judgment on your behalf and on my behalf. That's what makes his suffering different. God uses our suffering to bring us to himself. Verse 18, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. One of the, this is actually, I, I believe this is one of the greatest statements in the Bible that explains what God's doing in the area of suffering and also our response. God uses our suffering to bring us to himself for transformation for transformation he's changing us and so he'll allow if you will he'll allow these things to happen to draw us to himself to transform us to be more like him anything else or anyone else is really a counterfeit and I say that with all soberness and seriousness that if that if <clears throat> Uh, if, if there's something out there that is more attractive that pulls us away from Christ, away from a life with Him, away from uh, this idea that uh, the, the flesh gets put to death and the Spirit is made alive, anything else is really counterfeit. Anything else is taking those that second half of that verse and flipping it over. And what it does, and why I say it's a counterfeit, because what it does is it makes the flesh alive and the spirit dead. It starts killing off the spirit. But it exalts the flesh. That's why it's a counterfeit. What am I talking about? Remember the temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden? The false promise that they would be like God, like God, if they ate the forbidden fruit. Really, I, I'm a firm believer that all sin throughout all of mankind, all of history has a direct connection back to this idea. And that's this idea, that God is hiding something that, that mankind thinks is good for him, that God is hiding something, and that I need it. 
Because if I have it, I'll be like him. And in that process, just like Adam and Eve, and just like all of our stories, we know it's true. What happens is, is there's a lack of trust. No, there's a lack of trust. We don't trust in what God says. And Adam and Eve didn't trust in what God said. They didn't sanctify him in that moment. They didn't say, hey, this is what God said to do. We're just going to obey. The option was there. The opportunity was there. But because of something that was there that they thought they needed, and God said no, they were like a moth to the flame. And none of us can say any different about our own lives. We're like a moth to the flame. This is why sanctification is so important. This is why exalting Christ in every aspect of our life is so important. That God, that God is hiding something that I need to be like Him. And, re- <clears throat> and rebellion is the way to obtain it. When in reality, the way is to be like God. The way to be like God is to respond to His calling and see everything that He's allows as an opportunity to grow and a good thing in our story of redemption. I'll read that rebuttal to the uh, fall of mankind. The reality is, is that the way to be like God is not in rebellion, but it's in response. It's in response to his calling, and it's a response to see everything that he allows as an opportunity to grow, including suffering, including pain and trials, to see it as an opportunity to grow. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing in our story of redemption. The culture does not believe this. One, not even one aspect of it. Not even a little bit. They're into the self-actualization. They're into the, you know, the universe is in me. They're into, there is no universe. I mean, they're all over the board in a lot of different ways. But they do not believe that this is true. Peter goes on to say, verse 19, let's read it. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine, <clears throat> uh, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Paul makes this really dynamic connection between suffering and baptism and he uses as an example perhaps one of the most wicked times in the history of mankind, and that was the days of Noah. The days of Noah, and you can read it for yourself, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 5, God's plan in, in Genesis chapter 5 was basically to start over. Uh, it, it, it's really quite a tale. Like, what's going on here worldwide? We're better off to just start fresh. And he started over by washing the evil from the earth with those who would, uh, <clears throat> with the exception of those who would trust him. 
That's why it's the days of Noah. Noah and his family, the eight, are the, the, the few that survived with two of each kind of animal. And so that whole picture of Noah then becomes this picture of baptism. This, this whole idea that, uh, that we're going to start fresh, as it will. We're going to, to uh, exterminate evil, and we're going to spring forth new life. That's exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 5. Baptism is that same picture. Not that it, in and of itself, the actions of baptism save us, but, the way, <clears throat> but that the way, it's the way of a good conscience and a demonstration of a good conscience towards God. Peter's reminding them, and he should be reminding us, that uh, we've died in Christ. That we've died in Christ. That's the going under part. That's the underwater part. That's the symbolism. Uh, my mind starts to think about funny things when it comes to baptism. The kid that you know runs and takes the big cannonball leap into the baptistry. Uh, or my favorite one, uh, the kid who decides to get baptized and he puts a couple of Alka-Seltzer's tablets in his mouth and when he goes underwater, he takes in a little water. You, you guys know what Alka-Seltzer does. Are you guys getting the picture? So he comes up with this frothy foam, you know, kind of running down. Those are just kind of funny stories about that. Silas is over here like, oh. Hmm. He'd be the first one up here. Hey, can I get a copy of your notes? Baptism is a picture, and this whole story in Genesis 5 is a picture of God's redemptive work in the lives of his people. Washing away evil, proclamation that we're dead with Christ, so sin is done, and Peter's going to dive right into this in these coming verses, the picture that sin is done, and we're up in new life. It's an identity changer that believers must understand. We must understand this. I cannot emphasize that part enough. Because a lot of believers in the world today do not understand what their identity is in Christ. They're stuck in old ways, old patterns. It's because the old identity is still what's foremost in their mind... They've not made the connection that when they were reborn in Christ that they got a whole new identity. I spoke uh, a couple months ago about the reality that in Jesus we get a whole new spiritual DNA. We get His DNA in our, in our life. So He's reminding us as <clears throat> we've died with Christ, that's the going under part, and that we have the fresh life Fresh life in the Spirit. That's the coming up part. All this, of course, is available because of who and what Jesus did. And it's a symbol, and it's all a symbol based upon Him of the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus. Now, second component. Jesus' suffering is our pattern and provision for new life. With all this in the background, Peter goes on to say, Therefore, so the connecting thought between the passages, and then this is chapter 4, verse 1. Peter says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. 
the mind of Christ. Uh, our culture's all amped up right now, all arming up in some sort of form or fashion or thought pattern or whatever. And my question is, are Christ followers arming themselves with the mind of Christ in the times that we live in? Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. A few little sub-points that I write down to keep myself on track. Uh, there's something that suffering does, and, and I think it's the biggest reason why the enemy tempts people to avoid suffering, whether we medicate it, whether we try to outdrink it, whether we try to outwatch it on TV or the internet, whether we try to outspend suffering, whether we try to isolate ourselves away from everybody else so that we don't have relationships that cause heartache and, and pain in our life. Whatever people do in the flesh to avoid suffering, like Christ suffered, good suffering as Peter calls it, whatever people do, I believe they're tempted to do that by the enemy for one reason, and that's exactly what Peter says right here. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There's a connection between our suffering, the difficult things that we go through, and our ability to discern temptation and whether to follow it or whether to reject it. It's a great barometer for the believers today. Am I tempted to go there? Or am I, or am I willing to say no in faith to that to that thought, to that action, or to that word. And even if it means suffering, I'm still willing to go there because Jesus suffered for me. Is that our normal uh, thought pattern and process? I hope so. Peter goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 4 that he, <clears throat> that he no longer should live in the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. We're not locked as believers into this worldly pattern of fleshly living. It's exactly why Jesus came to set us free. We're not locked into it. Rather, you, me, all of us, anybody that's a believer can simply do the will of God. Can simply do. You think, that, oh, well, man, alive. I don't know if I'm doing God's will. I don't know if I'm obeying everything that he said to obey. How can I ever do it? <laughs> you know, and, and, you, and we have a tendency to kind of freak out. Let me tell you, it's real simple. Love God, love the people around you, and do good. It's pretty easy three-step process to remember. Easy to remember, not always easy to live out. I get it. I understand that. But we're in, when you are at that crossroads moment in life, that's what it boils down to. Ask yourself three questions. Am I loving God in this situation? Am I loving the people around me in this situation? And am I doing good, regardless of what happens after that? Because if you start thinking, or if I start thinking, well, if I do, yeah, I'm loving God. Yeah, I'm loving people around me. Uh, if I do good in this situation, I'm going to suffer. And if you try to weigh it out, if you write a pros and cons list and the top thing on your pro and cons list is whether you're going to suffer as a result of that or not, you've already missed it. 
We're not locked into a worldly pattern of fleshly living. Jesus sets us free from that. Praise the Lord. I'm think back to my own worldly pattern and fleshly living, and I definitely would not be here if I was there. For we have spent enough time in past lifetime, he says, verse 3, in doing the will of the Gentiles, kind of a, a figure of speech of non-believers that Peter uses. Uh, it wasn't a racial slur. It was kind of this um, classically Jewish comparison. Jesus, Peter was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. So when he says Gentiles, it's kind of, kind of this metaphorical uh, God followers are not God followers. We spend enough time in our past lifetime. Notice he includes himself. He says our past lifetime, not their past lifetime. So he includes himself in this idea. In doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked, he gives us a little famous list here, in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Eee. quite a list that's quite a reflection of where the heart is for the non-believer in regard to these he says in verse 4 they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation I love the play on words that Peter inserts here tying both the idea of Noah in chapter 5 in the days of Noah in the flood he ties that back in with this phrase <clears throat> they think it's strange. People around you are going to think you're strange that you do not run with them in that same quote-unquote flood of dissipation. As a Christ follower, we're not running with sin. We can't jog around with sin in our lives, Peter's saying. We can't, we can't carry it along in the fanny pack or in our back pocket just in case we need something extra. That's, that's, he says that's not, what the, that's not the definition and it's not the example and it's not the life of somebody who's in Christ. We can't do that. He says we're not running with sin anymore. That flood of dissipation. Rather, he says, they will give an account for him who is ready to judge the living and the dead for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Rather than running with sin, we're called to run with God. And when you're running with God, when you're out for a jog with God through the course of your life, that happens when we're living in the Spirit, when we're living according to the Spirit. And all of these, these negative attributes and ideas and realities are then replaced with all of the positive attributes and realities of life in the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, peace, contentment. They all get replaced. We're not running with sin, we're running with God. These are the indicators that we're following Christ. As we embrace these attitudes, and if the worship team wants to come on up, as we embrace these attitudes and actions, and I've mentioned this several times in the last couple of sermons, 
<clears throat> this starts really with a, a different mindset, a different understanding. And it, and it starts with, so it starts in the mind. Peter says the same thing, said it many times. It's attitudes and actions. It starts in the mind because what's in the mind is going to flow out through what we do. What's in our mind, what we're thinking about, what we're meditating on, what we're putting as a priority in our brain, in our mind, in our, our, our will, is going to flow out through our actions. So as we embrace these attitudes and actions, we will find ourselves in the safest possible place. That's in the center of God's will. That's the safest place that a person can be. And in that will is going to be a wide variety of things that go on through the course of our lives. And Peter's saying one of those things that's going to be there, Christ follower, one of those things that's going to be there with the peace and with the contentment and with the love and the joy and the patience, one of the things that's going to be there, that's going to be there for your benefit if you embrace the understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he calls you to. One of the things that's going to be in that fishbowl of life is suffering. It's going to be there. And we all know from our own experience, many of us have already embraced, have, have already experienced that. We've, we've lived that story. And so you think back over the course of, of your own life and say, man, man, I remember this time I remember this event. I remember what happened. The question is, is what did God do in your life through that? How did you grow in your faith because of that? These are the awesome stories that we need to share with one another. In fact, I will go on to say, and I've said this many times as well, your greatest suffering point, your greatest tribulation in life, your greatest tough time, is going to be used by God should you share the goodness of God through that story. It's going to be used by God in a dynamic way to reach people that, <clears throat> that no other story will, that no other testimony will. We can't be ashamed of the suffering if we're suffering for good. We have to embrace it, but then as we pass through that fire, what's our story on the backside? What's our testimony on the back side? We cannot shield it from people that are around us. When my younger sister and her husband lost their first child, the best piece of advice that Tammy and I ever got was to not shield our kids from the reality of life and death, even if it's their baby cousin. It was a terrible time of suffering. It was a terrible time of agonizing pain in our family. Yet to share that story and to teach our kids through that God has a plan, He has a purpose, we're called to suffer, we don't know exactly why, we don't know what He's going to do in the long run. It's not that we have to have all the answers, parents. It's not that we have to have uh, uh, all of the, the perfect you know, responses, dads, to the questions that our kids have. But are we demonstrating, like Peter's telling the people in Asia in the first century who were under tremendous pressure, are we demonstrating that God is good even through the suffering? That he has a great plan for our lives. 
that we're not living that old life of running around in a sinful nature, but we live as Christ. And this is what we taught our kids as little kids. I mean, they were just, they were young. Kayla's always been little. <laughs> Where'd she go? Oh, she left. She went to go get Jonathan. That's right. But they were young when this took place. But the best piece of advice, the best counsel we ever got, is to teach our kids through the fire. Not create an avenue to run around. Not, not uh, shield them from the realities of life but to teach them through it and to teach them the goodness of God through suffering. Let's close with our last song as we worship the Lord and give me a couple minutes to get my gear on. Would you stand with us, please?
that your story? And oh, how this story ends. Yeah, I'm going to see your victory. Yeah, I'm going to see your victory. Oh, the battle belongs to you, Lord. Yes, I'm going to see your victory. I'm going to see your victory. that comes our way. You're even in charge of the, you can bring good out of bad circumstances and the, the failed decisions in my life and in our lives, Lord. As we turn to you, as, repent, as we repent those ways, of those ways like Peter listed out, or we're not running that way. Like That's not who we are. That's not how we identify. We identify as your children as your men and women, as your people set free from that so that we can run with you, that we can enjoy life with you. And even in the difficulty of the, the hour and the struggle, even in the di difficulty of the tribulation that we may go through, we hold on to you as we walk through the fire because you're bringing a good th thing on the other end. You're bringing a good result on the other end. And Lord, for those who, who are here that are in the midst of it, that are struggling, Lord, with, with how to walk and, and how to follow you, Lord, I pray over them that they would hold on tight to you as you hold on tight to them, that they would sense your presence like never before, that they would see uh, where you're taking them like never before, that they would trust like never before, 
that they would understand and, and dive into your word and see who you say you are like never before. That today would be a fresh day of experiencing your victory in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the hurt, and in the midst of the disappointment. Lord, that those testimonies would, would ring out in a land that is avoiding you. That they would ring out in a land like Genesis 5 that is full of evil. That you are good. That you are great. That you've come to save. Pray that for each one that's here as we depart. That your spirit would be upon them to, as they walk out. They engage into the culture. That they would see those victories. Share those testimonies. And glorify the God of praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Each one said, Amen.